Thank you, Carlton. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. We are on a sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. And we are looking at various sections. We're not going verse by verse, various sections. Um, and today, as we come um, to a really difficult section, um, difficult section not to understand, but really difficult section to, to live out. Eddie, were you here this morning? Yeah, kind of tough? A little bit? Okay. Um, Jesus comes and, and he's constantly talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. He never talks about be forgiven of your sins so you can go to heaven. He talks about the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. And we don't have time to give the backdrop. If you are unfamiliar with what the kingdom of God is, we did a whole review last week. So please listen to the podcast and get caught up. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Jesus says when God comes, Jesus comes, he comes to usher in the kingdom of God, his rule and reign that is going to heal all things, heal all of creation. And that includes our relationship with God, but also with each other and also all of creation. And Jesus comes and he has audacity to essentially say, here's how the watching, unbelieving world that has no idea that I've come to do this and doesn't believe it, here's how they will come to know that you, that, that, that I have come to usher in the rule and reign of God, I should usher in the kingdom. Here's how you make the kingdom visible, this invisible thing visible. And he says, you're going to be the church. You're going to be the church. Meaning... Jesus says, I have created you. I've died and risen and created you, the church, the church of Christ, to be the embodiment of the kingdom. And last week, we said that the church does this in one of two ways. One is by being salt and light, being salt and light, salt and light. Why salt and light? As we said last week, the imagery of salt is not the world lacks flavor, so we need to go and add flavor. It's not what that means. What Jesus is saying is that the world, because of sin, is disintegrating. It's falling apart. It's falling apart in our relationship with God. It's falling apart in our relationship with each other. All of society, culture is ultimately falling apart. And our call and our mission is to go to places where things are most falling apart and redeem it and heal it and restore it. We don't run from places that are falling apart. We run towards places of disintegration, and we bring healing to it. That's how the world goes. So that's what God's going to do at the end. He's going to heal. Yeah, he's going to heal all things. I shared briefly last week, you know, for me, you know, this is specifically meant because the majority of my life is pastoring and counseling folks. So I'm constantly around people who are emotionally falling apart. And I tell you, I confess, my natural tendency is not run towards people who are emotionally falling apart. It's not. I'm just being honest. It's hard for me. My natural tendency is to run the other way, like many of you. But the call of Jesus on our lives is that when God places and places, and all of us, it's not about, well, where should I go? Trust me, where you are right now, there are areas of life in which things are falling apart. And you ask, how can I be who God calls me to be right here, right now? Salt and light. Then he says, you're also city within a city. And gosh, this is so huge because this is the mission of our church. He says, not only do you go out to the larger city and, 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 and work towards 
bringing wholeness and flourishing, shalom. He says within the city, the way that you relate, the way that you do life together, the way that you do relationships, the way that you forgive, reconcile, the way that different race, ethnicity get along, socioeconomic class, the way different people, the way that you live together, people ought to go, that is so beautiful, that is so amazing, that is so, that, that is just unheard of, that is unseen in this world to which we go, I know, that's why we are kingdom people. And the challenge for us, so we're going to see this in Matthew 5 to 7, the challenge for us is to go, are we doing that? Are we living that here in the way we do relations, the way that we do life? This kingdom community, are we being a visible demonstration of the invisible kingdom? Because the only way we can do that is that in our relationships together, we ought to relate to each other and do life in such a way that's unheard of, unseen in the world out there. Are you tracking? That's our mission. That's why we, and, and, and if you are part of this church you want to be a part of this, you need to understand that that's why we exist. We don't exist just to come to an event. We exist so that by the way that we do relationships and life together, the unbelieving world could see that and go, nobody does that. Nobody does it. Nobody, nobody, nobody spends money and nobody deals with money relates to money like that. That kind of generosity in there, that's just, un- no, nobody does that. And as we'll see today, Reconciliation, forgiveness, anger, bitterness, resentment. How do we deal with one another relationally? And I, I, I just had a hard time preaching this morning because I realized, man, I have such a long way to go in living out what Jesus says. Because the standards that, as we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, we're supposed to go, who could do that? Who could do that? And Jesus' answer is, people who've experienced the kingdom. People who have the rule and reign of God. Let me show you. Matthew 5.20. We'll jump, just jump right in. Jesus says, here's what kingdom people look like. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in verse 20, if you've entered the kingdom of God, your righteousness is going to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What is he talking about? That if you're a kingdom person, you've entered the kingdom, your righteousness. Well, the Pharisees and teachers of the law at the time were known for being very righteous. And righteous for them was they were very moral. They were strictly adhering to the commands. That's that's what they're known for. So you have these incredibly moral people who are incredibly obedient, and yet they were also incredibly harsh, incredibly narrow, incredibly judgmental, incredibly unloving. And Jesus comes along and says, if you're in kingdom, your righteousness, the quality of your character far surpasses them. To which we go, what does that even look like? Jesus says this. He goes, the reason why, the reason why they're harsh and narrow is not because they're too righteous. It's because they're not righteous enough. The reason why they're harsh and narrow and judgmental in the way they do things is not because they're too moral. It's not moral enough. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus comes and says, here's what righteousness as the past Pharisees look like. The Pharisees were fanatically zealous, fanatically obedient, fanatically following the law. But they weren't, at the same time, fanatically loving, fanatically welcoming, fanatically humble, fanatically wise, fanatically compassionate. We live in a day when people go, oh, he's he way too religious. He just chill out. He needs to just tone it down a little bit because he's too religious. And what people mean is they're too righteous, right? They're too moral, too obedient. Jesus goes, no, 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 the problem is not that you're too religious. He says you're not fanatical enough. 
Because you're like Jesus in one of two areas, but you're not like Jesus in every area. What would happen in our culture today if they saw Christians who were fanatically obedient, fanatically moral, but at the same time, fanatically loving, fanatically welcoming, fanatically compassionate, fanatically dying to themselves and living others? You know what would happen? They would take notice of Christians. You see what Jesus is getting at? So my question to you is, does your righteousness surpass the of the Pharisees? What would happen if a Christian community wasn't just known for their zeal, for their courage, for their obedience? But people said, oh, they, they, doubt, they lay down their lives for Hindus, for Muslims, for atheists? Yeah, they do. They welcome and love their neighbors, regardless of who they are, regardless of whether they believe or not? Yeah, they do. Is your righteousness, is my righteousness, if we venture the kingdom, surpassing the other Pharisees. Then Jesus gets to the heart of it. And he goes, so let me show you what this looks like when it comes to murder. Verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. Real quick, whenever Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, he's getting to something. Because whenever Jesus talks about Scripture, the Old Testament, Jesus never says, you've heard that it was said. He always says, it is written. It is written. It is written. So when Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, he was talking about something that was happening at the, day, at the time. And that was this. The religious leaders had come up with all these interpretations of the law, all these interpretations of the law, to make them more doable, frankly, because the standards of the law, standards of the law were, were impossible standards for, 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 for people. So what the religious leaders did was they said, out of these impossible laws, so that we could obey them, so we can do them, we're going to go and list a bunch of things so that they will be doable. So they were ex- literally taking the demands of the law and make it less demanding. And they were taking permissions of the law, and they were making it more permissible. So they were basically toning down the demands of God and high demands of God. Now, Jesus comes along and says, see, that's why rabbis and teachers are going around going, you've, you've heard, you've heard it was said. They came up with all these oral interpretations, and Jesus comes and goes, I'm going to reverse that in one of two ways. Verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. This is the sixth commandment, which was prohibition against murder. So basically what the teachers of the law did, they came and said this. They said, you're not violating this law if you just literally physically don't destroy someone's life. Do you want to obey this commandment? He goes, religious leader said, just physically don't disrupt someone's life. Then you're obeying this commandment. And Jesus comes along and goes, you have no idea what this commandment says. He's going to go on. And I'll just give you advance. Talk about three ways. Without even physically destroying someone's life, Jesus says, these are three ways you're guilty of murder in the kingdom of God. But before we do, there's a larger interpretive key you need to understand about Scripture. And that is this. Whenever the Bible prohibits something, it always entails and enjoins the opposite. Here's what I mean. The Bible says, do not murder. That also, at the same time, is saying, treat every human life and every human being as if they were of infinite worth, infinite value, precious to God. You tracking? Do not murder. It's not just, don't physically hunt. 
do not murder also is treat every human life as if it was infinitely valuable, infinitely worth it, infinitely precious. That's why the Bible says do not steal. It's not just not stealing. Do not steal at the same time as be radically generous. That's why the Bible says in the Old Testament that when you're not radically generous, God says, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. Robbing me. So overall perspective, Jesus says, is this, you want to know how to follow this commandment? To not murder? He goes, are you treating every human being you meet as if they were of infinite value and infinite worth, precious to God? The answer, what? No. And Jesus breaks it down. He goes, here are three ways that we don't. Check this out. Verse 22. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to a court. Do you know what Raka means? Raka? It literally means non-person, non-entity. <laughs> it's not an insult. It's not an insult. As I said this morning, if you get into an argument with somebody, you know, if you want to insult them, you can think of better things than to say, you know what you are? You're a, you're a non-entity. You're a non-person. That's not really offensive. It's not an insult. That's the point. Jesus says, raka is not an insult. It's an attitude. It's an attitude. Listen very carefully. Raka is an attitude of belittling. It's being dismissive. It's rolling your eyes and going, you don't matter. It's saying in your heart, you're dead to me. It's looking at somebody and going, it's an attitude literally of indifference. You don't matter. Not malicious towards you. You don't matter. Not angry at you. You don't, Jesus says, Have you, ever this, have you ever heard this quote from Ellie Wiesel? I love this quote. Nobel Prize winner. Holocaust survivor, just to give you some context. He says the opposite of love is what? It's not hate. It's what? It's indifference. Opposite of hate. It's indifference. The opposite of beauty is not ugly, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, but indifference between life and death. So I have a very personal question to ask you today. Is there any person today that you know of, that you're being dismissive of, that you're indifferent towards? You just don't care whether they like, you're not malicious towards them. Nah, whatever. Is there anybody that you're showing disdain towards? Let me ask you a further question. Are there groups of people you dismiss? Because your race, ethnicity, education level? Are there, groups of piss, <laughs> are there groups of people that you roll your eyes at and go, eh? Are there groups of people you go, what? It doesn't really matter. Are there groups of people? Are there groups of people? Are there groups of people that you dismiss because of their sexual orientation? Because of their political beliefs? Are there people that you dismiss because of their political beliefs? Roll your eyes and go, you're so stupid. Jesus says, seedbed for murder. 
unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees. And then he keeps going, you guys. You think that's tough? Oh, man. Verse 22. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger. By the way, by the way, resist the urge. Resist the urge. Resist the urge to use Facebook as a platform to dismiss people. Please. Okay, verse 22. And anyone who says... You fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. You fool in Greek literally is you moros. And we know what the interpretation is, right? You moros in English is what? You mor you moron. What is Jesus saying here? He's talking about the power of the tongue. And Jesus is saying, with your tongue, with your words, you could murder somebody. How? You could murder their reputation. You could murder their confidence in themselves. With your killless words, you just throw out? You're murdering someone's reputation. And con- why would you say, you're so stupid, you're moron? Only reason why you say it is so that they would believe you. If they believe you, you put a dagger in their heart that no surgeon will ever get out. Do you know how many times I've sat at a coffee shop or my office where someone who's in their 30s will come and say, my parents told me that I was stupid and that I would never make anything of myself. And I've spent my entire life trying to prove them wrong. Do you know what careless words that have been just dropped from parents to children has done? What spouses have said to other spouses? What Christians have said to other Christians. Let me, let me, give me like five minutes to spend on this because we're going to come back to it. But Carlton, this morning, this part felt very heavy to me. And I I felt like maybe it felt heavy because this is something that we all struggle with. Look at what what Jesus, or, or what the Bible says. The power of words. The power of words. Proverbs 12, 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the some of us need to commit this to memory, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Do you know how powerful words are? Do you know why solitary confinement is torture? Because the innate human need to talk to somebody and to be talked to is so powerful that to, to go out without it will churn you mad. That's how powerful words are. You are. It's like food. We need it for life. But what do we do with it? We could do one of two things. We gossip. We slander. This is why that is so dangerous in the church. Do you hear me? It's so destructive and dangerous in the church. One of the Bible verses that, uh, that, that scares me to death, frankly, every time I look at it, is Proverbs by the way, I'm preparing a sermon season the book of Proverbs, and, and, and it's just, um, it's blowing my mind. Proverbs 6, 16, 19, about how many things this to say about words in our speech. Here are six things God hates and one more that he loathes with the passion. Eyes that are arrogant, a tongue that lies, hands that murder the innocent, a heart that hatches evil plots, feet that race down a wicked track, a mouth that lies under oath, and a troublemaker in the family. Do you know what a troublemaker in the family is? It's literally talking about gossip. It's someone who goes, I'm really concerned about him. 
so, that's why I'm telling you, because I'm just so worried. Don't tell anybody else. It stays right here. Matter of fact, let's pray for him. It's a prayer request. Do you know what gossip is? It's the ultimate sinful way to want to feel superior to somebody. It is. The only reason why we gossip is not because we're concerned about the sin in them, the evil in them. It's not because we want to see them turn around. It's because we want to feel more superior to them. Why? Because if we're insecure, one of the ways to feel superior is to just tear somebody down. There's no better way to tear somebody down and go. By the way, most good Christians don't go, FYI, I'm going to gossip right now, okay? We're going to gossip right now. So let's gossip. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. No, we know better. What do we do? We go, it's a prayer request. Can I just ask you, can new community be a place where we don't tolerate that? Can I get an amen? Can new community be a place where, listen, listen, can, can this be a place if you're in the company of someone who is going on that we say to them, I don't need to hear that. You need to go talk to him or her, but I don't need to hear that. That's not Jesus. That's not God. That's not the gospel. Amen? Can this, this is, for me, why Christians are such terrible witnesses and non-Christians are just so turned off because we professionals at gossip. It makes me sick to my stomach when I do it. Words are powerful. They pierce like swords. They pierce like swords. How? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words can? They kill me. They get beneath the surface and can kill the self, the true self. I'm telling do you know how much devastation can be done to a human's, a person's sense of being and identity when they hear someone? Say to them destructive words carelessly. But they could also heal. They could also heal. They pierce, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Can I ask you something? How many of you guys have been healed by various people in this church because you've never heard until you came to this church things like, I love you, you're a person of worth, you're a person of value, God has gifted you. How many of you? Yeah? I hear that all the time. All the time, people in our church who said, Pastor Peter, I grew up in an environment, and I could relate. And the first time I heard my parents say to me, we love you, or my dad say, I love you, was like when I was like 35. It was like eight years ago. Now, he would go, but you knew, right? Well, yeah, I kind of, you know. I did all these things for you. Yeah, but it would have been nice to hear once in a while. Why? Because the power of the words is somebody could show you, but when they come, put their arms around and go, I love you. You're a person of worth. You're a person of It's like food to our soul. It's like food to our soul. Now, here's the thing. Instead of sitting here going, nobody does that to me. Nobody. What would happen if you turned around and said, who can I say this to? Who can I minister to? Instead of sitting and being resentful that it doesn't get, who can I minister? Who can I today, as soon as I get up, who can I go to and say, I love you. God loves you. You're precious and you're valuable. You're of infinite worth in God's eyes. I love you. Isaiah 58 says, if you're hungry, don't sit there and complain to the family. If you're hungry, go feed somebody. 
If you feed the hungry, then your light will break forth. If you're hungry, go feed somebody. Who can you bring wise words of healing to and not just sit here resentful that you're not getting it? Do you know why this is powerful and why it's so huge? Because you're sitting there going, okay, well, it affects other people. It doesn't just affect other people. Psalm, Psalm 12, 14, from the fruit of his lips, a man enjoys good things. That is, when you take a thought and you clothe it with the word, it is a powerful effect, not just on other people. It is a powerful effect on who? Us. If you're sitting there and words are coming out, God is unfair, God is unfair, God, God will ultimately begin to seem unfair. Well, it's his fault, it's his fault, it's his fault, it's his fault. It may be, it may not be, but ultimately, that blame shifting, you, believe, you begin to believe it. That's why liars ultimately begin to believe their lies. Slanderers ultimately begin to hate. And complainers, grumblers, ultimately lose hope. Your words and my words are like birds that we hatch. They go away for a while. We say them, and then they come back like vultures, and they eat our hearts out. Jesus says, you'll be judged for every idle word that you spoke. You know what an idle word is? What is an engine doing when it's idling? It's not doing anything. Jesus says, you'll be judged for every idle word. Idle words are words that are spoken. No reason, no purpose. Just talk, 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 talk. Idle, 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 idle. I know, this is heavy. I tell you what, being a kingdom community, watching words that we speak. For every idle word we've spoken, Jesus says, your words are powerful. They need to be registered. They're like lethal weapons. Are you weighing them? They're like little bombs that you're throwing out there, and they're going to go off in your heart, and they're going to go off in other people's hearts. You need to weigh your words. So listen to the kingdom standard, kingdom of God perspective. He says you're guilty of murder, not just when you physically destroy someone's life, but you're guilty of murder, and when you're indifferent towards people, you're dismissive, you're disdainful, you're condescending, you're belittling. He says you're also guilty of murder when you're careless with your words and you gossip and you slander and you put down. And then he says, and he finishes off with the flourish, verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And the word anger there, when we think of anger, we think of somebody who just loses temper. The word anger there literally means to swell up with poison. It's not a flare of temper. It's swelling up with resentment swelling up with bitterness is swelling up with a grudge slow swelling up swelling up the apostle Paul said something that if you think carefully about it it's profound he says in one of his letters I am the chief of all sinners I'm the chief of all sinners now was Paul, is it hyperbole? Was he exaggerating? You know, preachers like to exaggerate. I, I know I like to exaggerate. Was he just exaggerating? Paul, you're not the chief of all sinners. There's lots of people running around. Want to but if you understand doctrine of sin and what Paul is saying, you would understand the power of this. Let me show you a graphic. <laughs> Can I see the next slide, please? 
picture of the oak tree, not the acorn tree. I was like, isn't that a beautiful picture of the acorn tree? That's how I grew up in the city. It's an oak tree, dummy. Oak tree with an acorn. Think of the tree. Beautiful, flourishing tree as murder. Paul is saying, if the tree is bad, the seeds of that tree is also bad. The tree is murder. And the seeds of anger, of resentment, of bitterness is also bad. It's all in there. Paul's saying, I might not be out murdering people, but it's all here, right here. It's all in me. It just needed the proper environment for germination, but it's all right here. Can you relate to that? That's what I'm talking about. By the way, this is the reason why if you're a gospel-believing person, you can't look at a murderer and go, I'm much better than, no, 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 no. We all have it here. We all have it here. But by the grace and mercy of God and not the proper environment, he's kept us from it. Now, can I show you something? Most of the time, anger, resentment, bitterness don't result in murder. But it happens a lot more than you think. It happens a lot more than you think. Can I show you? I thought this was a joke until I, like, researched it. Let me show you a picture. 50-year grudge leads to murder. The headline? Listen to this. For more than 50 years, Carl Erickson secretly nursed a grudge against Norm Johnson for putting a jockstrap on his head while joking around in the locker room of their high school. In January, a 73-year-old retiree tracked Johnson down at his home, and he shot him dead. For 50 years, resentment, resentment, resentment. Anger, anger, anger. Quote, it seems unbelievable that he would hold a grudge for so long, but obviously he did, and over a silly schoolboy prank, said the police chief, Chuck Pulford of Madison, South Dakota. The incident reportedly happened in the late 1950s when Johnson was a popular track star at Madison High School and Erickson was a student manager. Johnson went on to play college football and earn bachelor's master's degree. He eventually returned to Madison High where he taught and coached for more than three decades. The 72-year-old with two daughters and four grandchildren also sang in his church choir and was an avid Green Bay Packers fan. Meanwhile, Erickson graduated from North Dakota State University and moved to Wyoming. He returned to South Dakota and settled about an hour away from Madison. Married for 44 years, he recently retired from a 25-year career in insurance. The incident over the jockstrap seemed long forgotten, but shortly before the murder, Erickson, listen to this, flew into a rage when his brother mentioned Johnson's name. Authorities don't think the two men had been in contact before Erickson went to Johnson's home on January 31st and knocked on the door at 7.30 p.m. and he asked his classmate his name twice before shooting him in the face with the 45 caliber pistol, killing him instantly. Johnson's wife of 53 years heard the shots and ran to the door where she found her husband lying on the ground and a man hurriedly walking away. Everyone was stunned to learn Erickson's reason for murdering Johnson. Jesus says, poison is poison. Anger, resentment, grudge, poison is poison. It may not result for a lot of us in actually doing, but he says, Why are you holding on to that toxic thing that's destroying your soul? Why are you holding on to that toxic thing that's destroying your soul?
Jesus is standard for his followers. <laughs> Don't ever hold a grudge. Seed bed for murder. Top of that, anybody you, you meet, anybody at all, never, never treat them lightly. Never be dismissive of them. Treat every person, every encounter as an infinitely precious being in the image of God. Never blow people off. Never look down at anybody. Never belittle them. Never. I want you to treat everybody as what they are in reality, infinitely precious in the image of God. I tell you, can I say something? This to me is a litmus test of why, whether we have experienced the gospel or not. Can I just tell you something? If you have experienced the gospel, how can we possibly belittle anybody? If we truly encounter the gospel, how can we belittle, look down upon, disdainful towards anybody? Isn't the very essence of the gospel that says, here's somebody, here's somebody, king of the universe, who became a nobody, Ephesians 2, 6, 7, who became a nobody, so that I, a real nobody, could become a somebody? How can I possibly look at anybody and be disdainful towards them? How can I possibly look at anybody and belittle them? How can I possibly look at anybody and roll my eyes at them? How can I possibly walk away from an account and go, you're nothing to me? When the gospel of Jesus Christ says, you who are truly a nobody became a somebody, and you will have a name forever, name for all of eternity, as a king, as a son or a daughter of the king, because Jesus Christ, who truly was a somebody, became a nobody. Can I ask you something? I plead with you. Is there anybody? Is there any group of people? Is there anybody that you're looking at? You're belittling. You're disdainful towards. You look at them going, you don't matter to me. Is there anybody like like that. Is there anybody holding a grudge towards that you're resentful towards? And then he says this. Verse 23. Therefore. Why therefore? Because he's assuming our hearts by nature will be snaring, will be dismissive towards people, will be belittling. Our hearts by nature will hold grudges. He says, this is the default mode of the human heart. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And Jesus says, it's not enough to just not be indifferent. It's not enough just to not be disdainful. It's not enough just to, well, I don't gossip, I don't slander. It's not enough, Jesus said, no, I don't hold grudges. It's not enough. Jesus says, the, the obedience is command is when you take that and you go a step further, and that is when you know that there's a relationship that's not right, you go repair it. Because if you don't go repair it, he's saying you're guilty of murder. That's how far he's taken it. Now, here's the interesting thing. You ready? If you offer a gift at the altar, we think churches, churches, altars, we're like, there are churches everywhere. This is Jerusalem. This is the first century. There's only one altar in Jerusalem, which means for Muslim people, they travel for days with their donkeys, sheep, whoever they're, you know, Offering sacrifices to. And they finally get to the altar. It's been seven days I've traveled from wherever. And I get there. And as I'm about, oh, I'm not right with him. Jesus says, stop. Go back. Go back. You, you got to be kidding. It took me seven days to get up here. Jesus, I know. Do you know what it's like to carry a sheep for seven days? He says, that's how serious this is. That's how serious this is. Jesus says, I don't care how far you have to go. I don't care how inconvenient it is. I don't care what kind of sacrifice you need to make. You need to go and make it right. Otherwise, you're guilty of murder. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to leave you guys in a very, very sort of, how would you say, unsatisfactory Position there. Because here's what I'm going to do. I'm basically going to lay out seven signs that you have a relationship that's not right. 
I'm not going to talk about how to repair today. I'm going to talk about that next week. So I'm just going to let you sit on it for a week. <laughs> By the way, you know what happened at 9 o'clock? Half the church was like, I don't have any relationships that don't, I don't have relationships that need repair because all of us are in denial. And it's not just a river and anyway. Um, it's, it's, we're in denial. And so basically, we're sitting here going out. So what I did was I went through these seven things. And at the end, I said, how many of us are in need of relationship repair? Just about everybody raised their hands. Now, here's the thing. Some of you already know that you have relationships that need repair. So all of this was just confirmation. This is really for those of us that are in complete denial. Signs that you're in relationship to now. And then we'll talk about how to repair it next week, which is so critical. Number one, you roll your eyes inside and you think to yourself out there, you're such an idiot, you're such a fool, you're such a hot mess. Question, have you ever thought about this somebody, somebody? Two people? Some of both, how many of us, how many of us have had these kinds of thoughts go through our minds about somebody? Yes, yes. Now here's the thing, here's the thing. How do you know you need relationship repair? The difference is we have these thoughts, but at the same time, there's absolutely no sadness in our hearts for them. There's no sympathy in our hearts for them. None. It's just a shameful dismissive. You're so stupid. You're such a moron. You're such a, and that's it. That's it. That's it. You know what the biggest difference between Jesus and a Pharisee is? Jesus said, actually, in Matthew 23, you're such a fool. And he got angry. Turn over tables. Differences. Every time he said that, deep sense of sadness, grief, and sympathy for the individual, even the perpetrator. Jesus never belittled. He was never disdainful. Never. Anytime he confronted someone with truth, he, <laughs> I just, just got to me. Jesus was probably the only human being on the face of the earth who could legitimately go, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Do you know what I'm talking about? All of us? Oh, no, no, no. This will hurt you way more than it hurts me. Jesus is on the cross. People are mocking him. People are spitting at him. And he doesn't go, you swine. He goes, what? Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Question. Thoughts? Disdainful, no sympathy, no sadness. Number two, when you hear about the person having a problem, that person that is, they got passed over for promotion, got fired, something unpleasant happened to them, and it's very satisfying. Your happiness is tied to their unhappiness. Number three. The irritation test. We all have things that people do that annoy us, right? We all do. We all have things. Say stuff, do stuff. But when they do it, you just want to kill. When they do it, four. You start to feel awkwardness in the relationship. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. A lot of us go, well, I don't feel anything. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You go, well, they don't feel Well, they might not feel it, but you do. You do. You know what that is. It's just awkward. It's just a sense of, I just, I'm comfortable. I don't really. 
Number five. You actually know you're avoiding them. The reason why you're here at 11 o'clock is because you know they come at 9 o'clock. <laughs> and the reason why you come at 9 o'clock is because they're here at 11 o'clock. There's a reason why you left that small group. This is the reason why some of you are like, I need to leave this church. Next one. You can pass along negative information about them to somebody else and really like it. I've already said this. It's a form of gossip. Stop it. Just stop it. Don't do it. Don't just. And if you are on the other end and listening to that garbage, just go, shut up. We need to stop. Last one. There really is a disruption. You are literally avoiding them. You don't talk to them. You don't respond to them. Can I ask you something? How many of you guys have relationships that need repair? <laughs> Everybody. Now, here's the key. You ready? Here's the key. I grew up in a small town in Korea. And in the town Korea that I grew up in, CC loved this. Relationships were thick. <laughs> Relationships were thick. You, you know what I mean by that? How many of you grew up in small towns? Wow, we have a lot of small town folks here. Relationships in small towns are thick. Here's what I mean. Your granddaddy went to their schools with their granddaddy. Your parents went to, you know what I mean? You went to school with them, elementary, high school, college, wherever. Everybody knows everybody. There's only one grocery store. It's like called Myers or something, right? What's that? Okay. Or some, something. And it's owned by some private owner. You know, so everybody shops for groceries. There's only one coffee shop. Only one coffee shop. And they, I don't know. They serve like Maxwell House or something, right? There's, and so every... Stop judging me. Um, <laughs> stop judging me. So everybody goes to coffee shops. So here's what I mean. If you grow up in a small town, relationships are thick. That means when a relationship is not right, it affects everybody. And so there's a tremendous pressure to get that relationship right because it affects everybody. You can't go anywhere without knowing that you need to repair that relationship. We live in the city of Chicago, and relationships are paper thin. You only interact with people in one setting. You don't work with them. You don't live in the neighborhood. You don't school. One setting. So when you have a difficult relationship, you just unfriend them. Literally and metaphorically. When you have a difficult relationship, you go, ah, I choose not to, I choose not to deal with you. And it's very easy. Very easy. Very easy to do that. And I got fired up this morning at this. This is, listen to me. If you're single, just sing you single. If you're single, 
Please do me and do everybody a favor and don't ever get married if you're not willing to grow up and do relationship repair because the most important thing in a marriage is learning how to do relationship repair. Do not get married if you are not willing to do the hard work of being in relationship repair because if you do not learn how to do that well, your marriage will be a wreck. So please, please, I beg you, I plead with you. This is hard. It's costly. It's uncomfortable. But as followers of Jesus and anybody who has any notions or inhibitions or uh, desires to be married, you've got to learn how to do relationship repair. Because if you don't, I don't care who you marry and you think that guy or girl is perfect, you will offend, you will hurt, you will misunderstand. And if you do not learn how to do relationship repair now, That marriage is already in trouble. And actually, we're going to talk about relationship repair. And I'm telling you, it, it, we stink at this. I stink at this. And then Jesus comes and he goes, relationship repair involves repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. Relationship prayer, when you've offended somebody and you know they're hurt, or they've offended you and you're hurt, Jesus said, it doesn't matter who did it, it's your job to go repair. That's what he says. Next week we'll see that. He says, it doesn't matter. if these are, it's, By the way, if you're sitting there going, well, yeah, I'm part of the blame, but I'm like 20% to blame, and they're like 80% to blame. The problem is they're thinking the same thing about you. They're sitting there going, I'm 20%, he's 80%, so he should, and it never gets repaired. In a city where relationships are thin, and you could very easily choose to not follow the way of Jesus and go, not going to deal with it because it's inconvenient. Jesus says, it's not who kingdom followers are. It's not how we behave. It's going to be hard, painful surgery next Sunday. And it's Mother's Day. Good Lord. Good God. I promise you, I didn't plan it like this. I promise you, I didn't. I didn't. It's Mother's Day for crying out loud. It's Mother's Day. It's Mother's Day. And we're going to, like, there's going to be tears and there's going to be just heart. Oh, it's Mother's Day. It's Mother's Day. And yet we're going to talk about how to do relationship repair. And frankly, for some of us, it will be incredibly, incredibly painful because it will bring reminders of the fact that perhaps for some of us in here, the people with whom we desperately need to do relationship repair are our parents. Pray with me. I didn't count, but I, in my brief glance, uh, almost every single one of you as at nine o'clock, we're humble enough to acknowledge that you need to do relationship repair. And uh, before we end church family with this song, um, final song I just want to 
I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, um, give an opportunity to speak to you in the silence of your heart. Some of you, as I said, you already know relationships that need to be repaired, and some of you are just going, I don't know, is that me? Is that me? Is this... Just pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to you. God would speak to you. Be willing to open your heart and say, Lord, I need you to I need you to speak. I need you to I need you to speak. God, this week, for some of us, God, we very much are going to feel like repairing that relationship is seemingly impossible. It's beyond our means. We don't have the courage, the strength. We don't have the love and the willingness to forgive. We don't have the capacity, God, to forgive that person or to reconcile with that person. And I just pray for some folks for whom this week this is going to sit very heavy, God. But in the midst of that heaviness, Holy Spirit, I pray and I trust your ministry, your power, your goodness, that you, as the Word says, Spirit of conviction, that you bring about conviction and show clarity about what steps need to be taken and what needs to be done. Will you bring to reminder faces and names, God, of people that we do need to repair relationships with? And we throw ourselves at your grace, at your mercy. We throw ourselves at you for without you and your enablement and your power God this is literally a pipe dream so give us courage this week give us willingness this week soften and melt our prideful arrogant haughty hearts that's unwilling to change with your spirit this week we want to and we need to hear from you we need you to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine we are in the special need of that grace and mercy this week father as we go about doing relationship repair empower us Fill us, convict us to be more like you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say.